This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And today our topic is Escaping the Prosperity Gospel. And I have a guest coming to us from Skype today who's well acquainted with the Prosperity Gospel movement. It is Kosti Hin. Kosti is coming to us from Gilbert, Arizona, where he is the Executive Pastor of Discipleship at Redeemer Bible Church. Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Mikhail. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to this interview. I just read your book. It was pretty good, and uh, it was kind of a page-turner, so normally I read a lot of heavy academic books, and this was just really nice to get into somebody's story. Um, It's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, and the uh, subtitle is How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Now, for those people who are listening and uh, watching our show and they hear your last name, Hien, they've probably uh, heard that name somewhere before, um, somewhere maybe on TBN. And uh, you do have a family connection to the famous uh, televangelist, Benny Hien. Tell us a little bit about what that was all like, just to get us oriented to your story. What was it like growing up in that whole context? Yeah, I'll give you the two pictures, sort of physical and spiritual. So the physical picture was growing up, uh, I've often said it, uh, like a mixture between the royal family and the mafia. So, Hmm. the lavish lifestyle of the royal family, uh, wealth, servants, mansions, the whole deal, and security. And then the mafia in that we were very loyal, and you never turned your back on family. It didn't matter what was going on, if things were uh, truthful, or if they were lies, or uh, what. You just, you never, ever turned your back on, on family. And so, that was physically what it was like. What that looks like then is flying on private planes, uh, driving Hummers and Bentleys, Ferraris, staying in the best hotels in the world, uh, eating at the best restaurants in the world, take your best episode from Travel Channel, uh, the old show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, sort of blend that all together, and that was life for us in the fast lane. And then spiritually speaking, the reason we thought that that was ministry, and the reason that I felt so strongly and that that was God's blessing and it was indicative of, you know, being anointed was because we looked at passages like John 10.10, where Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and life more abundantly Mm. as evidence for living the, quote, abundant life. Abundance meaning health, wealth, happiness. Then we would look at, you know, a greeting where John writes, you know, first, second, and third John, those short letters later in your Bible, and he says to one of his recipients, I wish above all that you may prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. You know, that mm-hmm. idea, uh, which would have been a standard greeting back then, we can talk about that another time. But overall, I would look at that and say, yeah, God doesn't just want me to benefit or prosper spiritually in my salvation, but goodness, He wants me prospering materially. It's Mm. always His will that we be healthy. It's always God's will that we be wealthy, etc. And so, we traveled the world preaching that. 
Uh, we took the Bible and uh, forced it into our system. We proof-texted, if you will, to ensure that uh, we had a version of the gospel that would sell well. And God was like a magic genie. If I rubbed him right with uh, a, a enough faith or a big enough offering, he would give me whatever I wanted. And so we preached that message. We lived that message and uh, lived like rock stars, but all on donations. Hmm, wow. Now, is that pretty much what the the core of the prosperity gospel is, the idea of being healthy and wealthy uh, materially as what God wants for you? Yeah, more or less, the prosperity gospel taps the uh, deepest felt need, I think, of every human being on the planet, which is to be comfortable, to be safe, to be secure, to have financial stability. Certainly, uh, you know, Peter writes in Second Peter 3, or uh, two, rather, verses one through three, when he's introducing an entire chapter about false teachers, he says, in their greed, they will exploit you. Hmm. And I, I do think there's an element of greed that's there, but certainly the people that buy into this, a lot of them are just after health and wealth and prosperity. Who doesn't want to be healthy? I, I, I want to be healed. I don't want to be sick. Nobody mm-hmm. wants their kids sick. So that is something it promises. And then who doesn't want to be wealthy or financially stable? You have a lot of independence. You don't have to worry how you're going to pay the bills. People want that. And then happiness. Who wants to be in conflict? Who wants to be fighting all the time with people? Who wants divorce and brokenness? We want to be happy and enjoying our life. Well, the prosperity gospel packages the Word of God and the life of Christ and the atoning work that He accomplished on the cross, heaven to come, earth now, all of that, everything about the Christian life, packages it up as this sort of get-rich, get-healthy scheme. And if you do what the anointed leader says, you're going to get all those things. So the bait-and-switch, or I would go stronger than that, call it a Ponzi scheme, really Mm -hmm. only benefits the guys at the top while everybody else continues to pay into the system, so to speak, hoping to get the benefits. And uh, there's a lot of false hope there. Mm-hmm. Well, the things that you mentioned really are kind of universal human longings, and so I can see how uh, there's a major draw there for a lot of people who uh, are, are led into this movement. Where do you think this kind of revivalist, quote-unquote, prosperity gospel came from? Well, if you go all the way back to a little place called the Garden of Eden, uh, you've got Lucifer, uh, the serpent, coming on the scene and convincing Eve with uh, a lie that undermines God's word, saying essentially, you know, did God really say? Is, is that what God said, Eve? And he begins to deceive and twist what God originally said and commanded and intended. So, obviously, you know, the serpent wasn't preaching the prosperity gospel, so to speak, specifically with that term. But no doubt, the enemy has always, from the very beginning, sought to undermine the truth of what God has said. Now, I I think that was a different era, a different time. God had made his will very clear. But I think today, uh, God has made his will very clear. He's made his message very clear. He has certainly conveyed that to the church and to the world in very clear ways. And Uh, Still today, though, the enemy is seeking to undermine God's message, to undermine the hope of the gospel, the fixation we're to have on eternity, the mission of God we're to live out now here on earth. All of this undermines that. Now, historically, to go one more place with that, 
I think you need to look back into sort of the mid to late 1800s and 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 get to know a guy named Phineas Quimby, and some of the historical literature that he put out. That is where the idea of name it and claim it uh, sort of gets its roots. I think you could probably go back further and pin more, but really just for a simple history lesson that's 20 seconds or less. He was a guy who introduced new age ideas. Uh, you can make it with your mouth or make it happen with your mouth. You could speak things to existence. That's where we get the idea of name it and claim it. Mm. Um, some people say sort of tongue-in-cheek, blab it and grab it. Mm. This idea that whatever you think, whatever you speak, you can bring into existence. Well, more and more preachers got a hold of that. And throughout the 1900s, you have you know, characters like uh, Smith Wigglesworth or Oral Roberts or Kenneth Hagin. You have the Word of Faith movement. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you know, a, a guy like Kenneth Copeland would propagate this idea. And, and there are branches of, of the world today and, and television networks that have a lot of this type of teaching. And it's real simple. Uh, you think it, you speak it, you declare it, and you're forcing God. You could really mm. control God, and God has to do it because he promised that he would bless you in his word. And I'll give you the, the linchpin verse for the prosperity gospel. Mm. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he became poor mm-hmm. so that we might become rich. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not what that particular text means, that we're all going to be healthy and wealthy because Jesus became poor. But that would be the linchpin verse. And so we just have to speak that and confess it, just like we confess our sin and we're saved by faith. We can confess health and wealth, and God will do it. Wow. And so uh, the, the idea of, of praying then, of, of faith, even tithing, is, is seen as a means to manipulate God almost. Is that right? Absolutely. And you see uh, a, a couple of chapters, like Second Corinthians 8 and chapter 9, where Paul's whole driving message there is generosity and giving generously to to others in the church and certainly to the Lord's work because Jesus was so lavish and generous with his grace mm-hmm. for us we should give with that heart we should be generous to others ready to share nowhere in that chapter or any chapters in the new testament is there this idea that if you give to the anointed leader that God is going to make you rich. Certainly, uh, there are promises and principles in the New Testament with generosity, where um, if you have open hands, so to speak, where you are you are receiving from the Lord and giving generously, I do see, and I think we all could exegetically see, that God certainly blesses that in a sense, but it could also be blessings that aren't material. Mm-hmm. Uh, peace, joy, treasure in heaven. Uh, imagine getting to participate in the harvest of souls. Those are blessings, and often the prosperity gospel says, you know, if you give to God this, you're going to get a hundredfold blessing mm-hmm. or a hundredfold return. It's like giving to the stock market, and you're going to hit it big if you give a big enough offering. Wow. So not only did you grow up just as part of the family, um, you were actually uh, doing doing work in, in the organization, in uh, what you call it, the, the empire, right? Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit what that was like going on these uh, crusades and, and being, a, being a catcher, as you say in your book, which is not about baseball. No. Well, what was it no. like to be a catcher <laughs> for the, uh, the Benny Hinn ministry? Yeah, being a catcher meant that I had to wear a suit and go up on the stage, and when my uncle would pray for people, and they would be, uh, quote, slain in the spirit, I would catch them. And you had to catch them good. You don't want to let them get hurt. 
And then, you know, and I, I'm not being funny here. I, you, you don't want them have to get healed twice, so to speak. <laughs> you drop them. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, there was that idea that you had to make it all look good for the cameras. And so I was a catcher. And then I was an assistant with my uncle as well on the road. So um, I traveled with him. I flew on the Gulfstream jet with him. I accompanied him many different places. And uh, that was like uh, a lifestyle that few people would ever experience you picture one of the hotels, the Burj Al Arab, uh, if you've ever seen the Travel Channel, the hotel in Dubai that's shaped like a big white sail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That hotel, we stayed in the Royal Suite, and the bill just for the Royal Suite was 25000 US dollars a night. Wow. And we had other suites as well. But imagine for a moment us going to do ministry, let's say, over in India mm-hmm. to minister to poor people in a big stadium or a huge property. And our layovers are the stuff of the royal family. We're going to London, staying at the Lanesboro. We're going to Paris and staying at the Ritz Paris. We're going shopping. We're going to Greece on the way or Italy and stopping over at the Vatican. And then, you know, over to Dubai for a couple of nights to enjoy that. We would just go on these layover trips and we we would think that we were resting and experiencing the blessings and rest of God before, of course, going to pour into all the poor people that were in India. And we would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on trips at our leisure. And then when money ran low or we had spent a lot, we certainly would fundraise a great deal. But there was a steady stream of millions of dollars coming into the ministry every single month, not every single year, every single month. And so there was what seems to be an endless amount of assets and capital that you can just spend on your lifestyle under the umbrella of uh, serving the Lord. Mm, wow. Uh, you were just a teenager then, weren't you? Yeah. At that point, I was 19 years old. Wow. And that was uh, a, a wild way to live when you're 19 and you've got access to that kind of freedom and that kind of money. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, a number of names associated with, with this movement. You mentioned Oral Roberts. Tell us about sure. when you met him and, and what how significant that was for that movement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we believed that Oral Roberts was one of the greatest men of God to ever live. And uh, next to my uncle, which we were taught, and, and many of my family members believe he is the greatest man of God to ever live or the greatest man of God of our entire era. And so Oral Roberts, though, was a mentor, and he poured into my uncle a great deal. And we took a lot of his teachings and, of course, used them. And so the same way that someone might, uh, you know, grab a, a, a Chuck Swindoll commentary or, you know, lean over into Criswell or Warren Wiersbe or MacArthur or whomever, you, you, you know, for us, it was Oral Roberts mm-hmm. and Kenneth Hagin. And so uh, that ended up being... Uh, where our go-to was. And so we taught that. And one day during a crusade, I was enjoying myself. I used to always go to the green room and eat. (laughs) And my dad called me over in a panic and said, you know, get over here right now. Earl Roberts was about to leave. And uh, for my dad, that was the greatest moment that I could ever experience for Earl Roberts to lay his hands on me. And so he rushed me over, and I just remember he, he has large hands. He was, a, he was a good-sized guy, and put his hands on my head, and he prayed some prayer, typical that time of you know prophesying blessing and anointing and all that. And we often said, you know, double portion type stuff, like Elisha and Elijah, mm. and, you know, that God's mantle would fall on me. And 
I just remember not really caring much about what had happened. I just wanted to go back to the green room and eat. And my dad uh, saying to me at the time, you know, one day, you don't maybe realize what just happened, but one day you will. You know, essentially, in his mind, the greatest man of God who ever lived or in my circle, our camp, had just, you know, endorsed me. So you picture if you're listening and you're in the DTS family, uh, you know, Schaefer or Ryrie or someone like that mm. giving you giving you an hour of their time and praying for you and then launching you into ministry. You know, it'd be that idea. And um, so that was a memory that I've had for years. And that was the one of the bigger moments with Oral Roberts that I had. So in the eyes of many people in this movement, you were be kind of being set up to uh, take, take leadership, some serious leadership of this movement. Is that right? Yeah, in the Middle Eastern family that I grew up in, my father is a Palestinian Arab, uh, born and raised in Jaffa, Israel. You name your firstborn son after your father. And so my name, Kosti, is after my, or my full name is Kostandi. It's, I'm named after my grandfather. And I am the oldest in the family. Even though my uncle Benny's the oldest son in, of all the brothers, my dad had the first Kosti. And in a Middle Eastern family, if you're cultured, you know, you understand this. It's a, in a lot of different cultures. The firstborn son of the next generation is a sort of, a, I don't know, figurehead or, or supposed to be. It's like a birthright. You know, he's supposed to lead the next generation. And so I was being groomed to lead the, the family ministry, uh, to be the next up-and-comer. I was the oldest Kosti. I was said to have, you know, my grandfather's name, and so I'm going to have a great anointing. And so all of that uh, was the setup. And my dad was working with my uncle. We were very close all together. My dad also pastored a church in Vancouver, British Columbia, so and mirrored the exact model that my uncle had put together mm -hmm. in Orlando at Orlando Christian Center, the church that he originally started. So all of that hopefully gives you a picture of the, the orbit that I was in. Mm -hmm. What would you say keeps people loyal to the movement and to the leaders? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's a complicated question. I'll try to answer it in simple ways. First of all, uh, you know, Second Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, of course, the famous verse 2, and Paul tells Timothy, you know, preach the word. Mm-hmm. When you look at the reason for him saying that, he said, a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, and wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll turn aside to miss. They'll raise up teachers in accordance with their own desires. Well, it's real simple. It, people want it. There certainly is that category. There are people who want this type of teaching. They're loyal to it because they love it. They want what it offers. There's that. But also, there are millions of desperate, hurting, broken, sick people around the world who want a solution. They're trying to, with the best of intentions, get healed. They have a child who's on life support, who's terminal. They have no more options. They are broken in poverty. They need a miracle. They're begging God to move on their behalf, and they're just trying to find the best road there. Uh, they're in ignorance, certainly. They're naive. They're the mission field. We need to be uh, reaching them. We need to be sharing the gospel. That's why I wrote the book. I didn't write the book to, um, you know, reach a, a a really smart seminary student who's got it all figured out and it you know is just fine. Uh, certainly, I hope it wakes one of them up. But 
I wrote the book to equip people so that they can go out and reach people who are caught up in the movement and so that it, the book would land in the hands of people in the movement and they would begin to see it and God would use the power of the Word through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, to open their eyes. And that's really our mission field, Mikkel. The people who are chasing this, they're mm-hmm. desperate. Um, I believe Certainly, God will use us to reach many of them, but uh, it's attractive. And then, you know, on that level, it's not that crazy because we all, like we said earlier, need healing. We all need um, miracles in our life. We all need breakthroughs. They use the word breakthrough all the time in the prosperity gospel. Uh, You know, even the the most uh, brilliant student may have student loans that he has to pay Mm. off or she has to pay off. So, Everybody has needs mm-hmm. financially, mm-hmm. relationally, physically, and the prosperity gospel puts that in front of us, much like a carrot dangling it. And if you're not rooted and grounded in God's word, you're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves and winds of culture. And that's why we need sound doctrine so we can stick our feet in the concrete of God's word, if you will, mm-hmm. and hold fast during turbulent times. Yeah. Well, you went through a transition in your life out into a different community when you went to Dallas Baptist University, which uh, some <laughs> yeah. people may be pretty surprised that someone coming out of your context uh, went to DBU. But tell us how God used that time in your life. Yeah, I was there to play baseball, and so the Lord has a great sense of humor. Uh, I certainly was there to play baseball and got a whole bunch of Bible, which mm. was great. So I remember uh, one particular professor Uh, His name was Mike Milburn, and he was the pastor at that time of, I believe, First Baptist Burleson, Texas. He had a real thick twang, Hmm. and uh, he said right away in my New Testament survey class, you know, Costi Hinn, and I said, I'm here, sir, and he said, you kin to Benny? And he said, Benny, you know, (laughs) you kin to Benny? I said, yes, that's my uncle, and he said, oh, well, I better be careful when we get to the tongues part, and he was just (laughs) joking around, having fun with me, and a very kind man. But I begin to understand, and I, and I got, a, a, I believe, a, an A in that class, because I knew the Bible, I knew the information, but there had never been transformation. My heart was not changed, my mind was not changed, but I knew the facts or the stories of the Bible, because we grew up interacting with the Bible all the time. So I go through that. Well, I've got a baseball coach who also presses in on my life and shares the gospel, shares the truth, and one day he calls us up after... Uh, We all get out on the field right before a scrimmage game, and there's a scout in the stands, and he says, hey, guys, y'all need to relax. Uh, You know, you're getting real uptight over a scout being here. Proverbs 21.1 says, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And then he said, God controls kings. He controls scouts. He is sovereign. He's in control. So you guys control what you can, which is to go out and play the game. You let God handle the rest. He already knows your future. So don't worry about what you can't control. And I remember thinking, what in the world is this guy talking about? I you know, I know how to get God to work for me. What's the sovereignty stuff? How do I get on the good side of that? How do I get God to do what I want him to do? And, and I really remember thinking arrogantly, my coach drove a, a white Toyota Camry at the time. I drove a Hummer. And I'm thinking... I know a little bit about getting God to do what I want him mm. to do. This this guy, he, some Baptist, I don't know what he's talking about. And 
you know, it turns out that the Lord would use that some years later when I was in ministry, preparing a sermon on healing, no doubt, John 5, 1 through 17, the healing at the Pool of Bethesda, to come back really to mind. And it was like a crack in the, the dam of my theology. And it, it burst forth, broke open that day in study when I came to John 5. And I, I realized that Jesus is a sovereign healer. And uh, you can't manipulate him. You can't turn his healing ministry into a formula. Uh, there were times where he was moved with great compassion, moved by people's faith. There were other times, like the man at the pool of Bethesda, who had no faith, didn't even perceive, the Greek word says, didn't even know, didn't perceive who Jesus was, mm-hmm. let alone have enough faith for his healing. And uh, Jesus did as he wills and as he works for his good pleasure. He's a sovereign healer. And that truth came to bear upon my soul, and it was my coach that was planting major seeds in my life. At the time, uh, he wasn't trying to undermine anything or be clever. I still have a great relationship with him today and was just out in Dallas speaking at DBU not long ago. And um, you know, we're just overwhelmed by the grace of God as we talk about those days. And he was just doing what he always does, staying on mission, sharing the truth, and that impressed upon my heart in a huge way. And of course, years later, I'd be saved. Hmm, wow, that's amazing. Um, so you mentioned John uh, 5, you were working on a sermon for that later on, but uh, let's rewind a little bit back to, to college days. You met this lovely woman who God put in your <laughs> life, who um, through a series of events also led you to uh, some more scriptures that kind of uh, put some more cracks in that in that uh, foundation. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, right after graduating from DBU, I met a beautiful, wonderful gal who's, of course, now my wife, Christine, and she's due with our fourth child in just a few weeks. Mm. And at that time, she drove a Yaris. She was working at TGI Fridays to put herself through college. She was very conservative, blue-collar family. And of course, I'm driving a Hummer. i flown in private planes. Our family has two homes. We have Ocean View, Orange County, California, you know, living like rock stars at that point. And here comes this gal. And I keep her a secret for a little while for my family because I just fall head over heels for her. She's amazing. I'm thinking, I this is the kind of gal I think I need to marry, all that. Well, my family gets wind of it. And uh, they say, well, we'd love to meet her. Is she spirit-filled? And I thought, oh, no, here we go. Hmm. Uh, and, and I had a little bit under my belt at this point from my Baptist undergraduate education. <laughs> uh, and I said, now, don't start with all that. We all get the Holy Spirit at conversion. There's no, you know, none of this second blessing type stuff. and all. We all get the Holy Spirit now. You know, I was, I was just repeating what I had heard. And, uh, you know, they said, well, does she speak in tongues? I said, well, no, she doesn't speak in tongues. And so one of my family members said, well, then she's clearly not saved and does not have the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there began a process where the Lord, through that particular uh, belief, started to undermine the foundation of what I believed. And so Christine would just ask normal questions, uh, and I couldn't answer them. Unless I twisted the Bible or said, well, you, you know, you, you don't understand these deeper truths. She was a newer believer, so sometimes I'd say, you know, that, that's a deeper truth. In mm-hmm. other words, 
I don't know how to answer yeah, your right. question. <laughs> no, so um, that started to happen. Well, eventually it got a little more serious, Mikkel, and uh, my family started to basically try to get her to speak in tongues, force her to. And they took her to different services. She went to my uncle's crusades, my dad's, and uh, eventually it got really serious. And we ended up going to the Bible really just broken and pleading with God for answers and trying to figure out what was what. And we came upon, of course, we think we stumbled upon it, but we know the Lord was working providentially in all of it. 1 Corinthians 12.30, where Paul is essentially and rhetorically asking questions that are obviously no. You know, not all speak in tongues. Not all, not all, not all do they. And he's going through the list of gifts. In other words, not everyone's going to do the same thing. Not everyone's been gifted the same way. You can't put a requirement on people that they have to speak in tongues or they have to do signs and wonders or they have to prophesy or they're not actually saved. You can't attach what is a spiritual gift given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to uh you know, redemption to being saved. That That's repentance, that's faith, trust in Christ, the grace of God. And so that was happening. I remember looking at that text with her and thinking, oh my goodness, I think you're off the hook. Like, I, we, we could get married because it was really mm-hmm. serious. And some people may laugh and think, oh, come on, that's, you really thought that? Absolutely. We were under the bondage and belief thinking, if she doesn't do this, I can't marry her. And there were a lot of prophecies against her that she would ruin the anointing on my life, that uh, she was uh, an agent of the enemy, essentially, to undermine the family and all of those things. Uh, someone once prophesied even she would be barren. We'd be under a curse of barrenness because uh, I was going outside the family's blessing and wow. marrying her. And, uh, of course, you know, by the grace of God, three three children, and Lord willing, a fourth about to be here. She's not barren, but at the time, all those fear tactics were used to mm. try to keep us locked in on what was a very dangerous belief system. Wow. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Now, what kind of doctrine of suffering is there in the prosperity gospel? How do they make sense of the book of Job? How do you make sense of Paul's suffering? Um, What's the idea behind suffering in, in the prosperity movement? Yeah, well, one time my uncle said that Job got it wrong. So just to give you an idea, um, that was said publicly. Uh, he said, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Job said that. Job was wrong. And wow. so that it can be as bold as that, you know, someone saying that somebody in the Bible is wrong. And I think right there you're, you're just you're, you're stomping on a few things, one of them inerrancy, but that another topic for another time. But overall— you avoid it, and then if there is any acknowledgement of it, you would say that Paul was laying the foundation for us, that 
you know, they suffered and, and sacrificed so that we could have these truths. You know, there's ways to spin that, right, mm-hmm. and say, well, Paul, that was that was early on. And, of course, God was building—remember, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. So, you know, he's building his church, so we have it better than they used to. Now, you're probably thinking— what in the world are you talking about, Costi? But in these circles, that'll preach. Hmm. That'll really preach. And so you could say, you know, we're Ephesians 2.20, you know, the foundation of the apostles. They're foundational even in their suffering. And because of them now, we build a top now today, living lives of blessing and joy and all of it. You have all of that that can be twisted and packaged up to sell it. But the number one way that a prosperity preacher will deal with suffering or have a theology of suffering is to avoid it altogether. And you see this, and I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful. I prefer not to name names unless it's purposeful. So we'll just do this one. You've heard of Joel Osteen before, and he goes on certain television programs or uh, CNN or what have you. And you've heard him say before, maybe if you haven't, you can YouTube this. They'll say, you know, I just don't feel like that's my calling to talk about sin to talk about, you know, what people believe and don't believe. My, I just want to stay in my lane. My job is just to be an encouragement to people. I just want to stay positive now. I'm just here to tell people the good news about Jesus and his purposes for them and all that he wants for them. And then I let all that other stuff just work itself out. Hmm. Well, that's a great approach because now I only have to preach one thing all the good stuff. So I give some gospel. Uh, I talk about God's blessing. I talk about giving and and sowing and reaping. And I talk about sharing and loving. And all of those, by all means, do that, preach that. Those are all great things. But if I can't come to, you know, Philippians 28 and 29, if I can't come to James 1, 2 through 4, Romans 5, if I can't come to the text— and be able to tell people, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. Mm-hmm. If I can't come to Romans 5 and explain that, you know, perseverance is part of the Christian life. And, uh, you know, it's building character when you exalt in your tribulations. It's, it's actually giving you greater hope. Or like Paul told the church at Philippi, it has been granted to you the privilege of suffering. That's crazy talk in the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. But for us... It's the other side of the coin, isn't it? There is going to be great mountain victories. There are also going to be great valley trials, if you will. Moments of blessing, and that's going to mean material for some people, and that's going to mean healing for some, but also moments of trouble and pain and suffering, and that may mean loss. I think of a woman like Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm not sure if you've heard of mm-hmm. her, but uh, you know, 50 plus years in a wheelchair, If anyone deserves to be healed, it's her. If anyone would bring a lot of glory to God in being healed, it's her. And yet, she's never been healed, but she goes on with her ministry. There will come a day in eternity when she is set free, when she will be, like uh, Jesus says in, I think, Revelation 21.4, I believe, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more tears. Uh, Across the board, there is coming a day where there is guaranteed health, wealth, happiness, and prosperity. It's called heaven. It's glory with Christ. And if I'll go even further, it is that way because of Christ. Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate. He's the treasure. He's the glory. Um, he's who we seek. And so, uh, that is, of course, not going to be prevalent in the prosperity gospel. And if you tell people all the good stuff they're going to get, 
People like the fluff sometimes, and mm. we just need to be faithful to preach the entire, the whole counsel of God. That's true. Yeah, when you think about historic Christianity in contrast to some of these uh, new religious movements, you see that Christianity has a really good worldview fit with the way reality actually is. Yes, where, doesn't it? Where you have other religious movements that will preach certain things, and you just wake up every morning and go, how can this be true? Because um, I'm sick today, <laughs> and uh, you know, no amount of just saying, I'm not really sick today, is going gonna, is gonna to change that. And so um, it's interesting how... Uh, you know, sometimes people are able to close their minds to uh, things that are just staring them in the face. Um, but it's it's a sign, I think, of of how desperate people are to um, to to have actually what only Christ can give us. Uh, lasting human fulfillment only comes from a relationship with God that's vibrant, that's living um, every day. Amen. Well, through your spiritual journey, God led you to a number of people, a number of resources, and one of them I read in your book was a little book written by our chancellor here at DTS, uh, Chuck <laughs> yeah. Swindoll. Uh, tell us about what role that played in your in your journey. Yes, I have I have the book right here because we had talked a little bit before uh, the show started, and and I asked you if I could go grab it real quick off my shelf. Church Awakening. Um, I find this just hilarious that we're talking because mm-hmm. about this. Because, so at the time, there's a woman in our church in Canada. I was my dad's associate pastor. This is just before. This is 2011, I believe. Um, and 2012, I would end up in California. So 2011, I'm there. And uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, 2011 into 2012 as well. My wife and I were now engaged. We got engaged on January 7th of 2012. She comes and slips me, this woman in our church, comes and slips me this book. And funny enough, I had just preached a sermon on Job because mm. I thought, I just thought it'd be good to preach on Job. I still don't know why. And I thought, we need to preach, John, we should preach on hard times. This might help. She comes and hands me this book and goes, hey, keep going. You know, you're on the right track. And I'm like, what? And she hands me this book like it was a, a drug deal, like it was secret. <laughs> you know, here, this is, you know, I'm <laughs> hiding it. And so I grab the book, I devour it, and brother, I'll tell you, uh, there's a whole paragraph section in there that, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Swindoll says um, a few a few choice words about false teachers. We'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And it fit us to a T, hmm. to a T. And I remember that being a moment where I thought, you know what? Yikes. And the whole book is this call back to truth, back to the Word, back to the Holy Spirit, back to conviction, back to um, being faithful and for the church. And so, in a way, yeah, the Lord, I, if I made a list, I, I could just list out a dozen either resources or people that God used to chisel away or put cracks in the dam, and then eventually this thing burst open. And so it's just another great reminder of how God uses people. Um, God is the author of salvation, of course. He's the one saving. We're not saving ourselves, absolutely. And He uses people. He uses the church. The church is plan A. There's no plan B. Plan A, evangelism, Otherwise, why would we be on the earth? Why not just take us all to heaven? We're on the earth to be salt and light, to reach um, the world, to reach the lost, and then, um, you know, it's over. So, as plan A, we should be busy, and I'm thankful that people like Swindoll and many others have been busy 
about the Father's business so that uh, guys like me can be given a book by a, a secretive, unassuming uh, El Salvadorian woman in our church, hmm. and uh, it would do something incredible in my heart. So how did you ultimately make that definitive break and escape the prosperity gospel movement? Yeah, I call I, I call the moment, well, really one of my pastor friends, mentor, calls it this, and it's funny, I'm not trying to be clever, it's the name of another book called Grace Awakening hmm. that Swindoll wrote too, but um, my Grace Awakening moment was uh, coming up on a sermon, it, the, I would have preached it on April 30th of 2013, I was prepping for that sermon about seven years ago, and it was the John 5, 1 through 17 sermon. Mm -hmm. My pastor, mentor at the time, threw me a commentary and um, said, hey, this is, this is a commentary. It'll help keep the train on the tracks. And uh, it was a MacArthur commentary, one of those little burgundy ones that um, Moody put together. And so I, I never thought twice about who he was or anything like that. I just went on with it. And I'm reading the text, and I made observations, and somebody had handed me this handout at our church who w was leading like a, a, a Bible study about the OICA method early on, and it was observation, interpretation, correlation, application, just real simple stuff to just figure out what's what. And so I'm making observations of the text in my study, and I see Jesus heals one out of a multitude. I'm going, that's, and, and it was like new eyes. That's weird. I always thought you heal everyone. I just realized you healed one guy. Why'd you do that, Lord? So I'm, I'm allowed to finally ask questions of the Bible, which was liberating in and of itself, because in the movement I grew up in, you never ask, never question anything, or you're touching the Lord's anointed, so to mm. speak. Well, then Jesus heals him immediately. John records that, I thought, right away, no fanfare, no white jacket, no stadium, no music, no offering, none of it. And then, um, like I said earlier, the man doesn't even know who Jesus was. All of that sends me into a spiral of confusion, but mostly because my old beliefs weren't proving true. I grab the commentary, and it says, you know, uh, here is a prime example of Jesus as a sovereign healer. And the word sovereignty comes to mind again, and my coach mm -hmm. used to always bring that up. And mm -hmm. so I thought, oh my goodness, you know, Jesus is a sovereign healer. He is sovereign over all. I mean, I'm like, what in the world? This is what he meant that's so true. And then he goes on and, and kind of goes off about false teachers and says the cruelest lie of faith healers today is the people they fail to heal are guilty of negative confession, unbelief, etc. And I'm going, oh my goodness, that is exactly what I used to believe and hmm. teach. It's what we did. So I start crying. And it was a, a powerful moment that the Lord could only accomplish in, in the heart of a human being. And I it was over. My eyes were opened. Everything made sense. I wept. I repented. I realized the life I'd lived, the teaching I'd adhered to, all of that. Um, I said sorry to the Lord for twisting the gospel, for believing a false gospel, and I vowed to preach the true gospel. So from there, um, I literally got up. I ran over into my pastor's office, and I was the associate pastor at the time. I kicked the door in, basically, and I started saying, it was all a lie. We, these guys, this, the false teaching, and I was just going off, and I, and I was telling them that, you know, I'm going to do something about this. We got to do something about this. This is hurting people and all that. And so he said, Costi, sit down. <laughs> so I sat down, and he said, listen, God's got a good handle on the gospel. Um, 
you just focus on being faithful. I said, okay. He said, yeah, the time may come when, when you do something about this or you write something about all oh, that may happen. But right now, you basically told me to shut up and do my job. You know, that was the, that was the <laughs> approach. Um, be faithful. And so I lost my title of pastor. I became PIT, pastor in training. Uh, I started devouring books. I went to seminary. And um, my pastor... His father uh, was a, a DTS graduate and had thousands of books. And so uh, John Walvoord began to line my shelves, and Chriswell and uh, Gromacki and many others on the work of the Holy Spirit on uh, interpreting the Bible, uh, Zuck and many others on Bible interpretation. So I just begin to devour books on church history. Um, I have a, a beautiful old set right over here. Uh, it's Lewis Perry Schaefer's uh, Systematic Theologies. It, it just be- I, mm. I just begin to devour. And I was like, where has all this been? <laughs> this is free. Like people just, well, I know you got to pay for books, but <laughs> it's right there. You could just read and then you would learn things. Mm-hmm. And so I went through that and it was about a four-year journey um, mm. of lay training, uh, biblical counseling, and then entering into seminary. And of course, I recently graduated, um, and I'm going to keep going, and I want to eventually do doctoral work and just be faithful. But overall, that's how it all happened, and lots of details in between, but that's why you write books, and, and but podcasts are limited in yeah. far, as far as time. So, But that's how it happened, man. Wow. So let's shift gears a little bit here, and what would you say to somebody who comes to you and, and say, read your book or heard your story? and says to you, Kasi, I'm really concerned about a family member of mine or a friend of mine who is either uh, has these kinds of leanings or is getting led astray by, by this movement, or maybe they're in a church now that uh, is, is a prosperity church. Uh, what would you say to them that, that could possibly help them to, uh, to reach out to their, their loved one in that, in that context? Yeah. First of all, do not go cage stage on them. What I mean by that is cage stage is a, is a, a season that I was in, and it basically means it's, you know, you come into contact with truth, and it's better that you be caged for a little while, lest you say something hurtful or foolish to people. And I went off on my family. Mikhail, I, I mm. told my dad, he's a false teacher. I called my, I mean, everybody, I, I unloaded and was like, you know, well, I should have been caged for a little while, um, because the same commands apply to us when we come to contact with the truth, or when we're mature and we know the truth and, and, and we're walking godly, which is for us to watch how we talk, to watch how we relate, to love one another, and to be kind and gracious, to be um, having speech that is seasoned with grace. So, first of all, uh, be careful how you react. Sometimes, because we love people so much, we tend to love them a little too much, and we unload on them, and we can come off aggressive. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't have gospel zeal. I'm just saying be careful with the approach and your emotions. But really, I would point people to Jude's words in Jude uh, 17 through 23 would be the, the main section. But where Jude says, uh, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be merciful on people who are doubting. There's there's three categories. Then he says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. 
That'd be another category. And then to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Um, I think you've got the doubters, the deceived, and the dangerous. That's the way I've preached it before. Um, the doubters are people who are wavering. They're not sure. Uh, man, get coffee with them. Take them to lunch. Build a friendship and a relationship around trying to reach them. And be merciful. I really believe Jude says be merciful because these are some of the hardest people to be merciful towards because you just want to kind of hit them with your Bible and go, stop wavering. Just mm. wake up already. You know, they're the wishy-washy, and it could be almost more frustrating dealing with them than hardliners because wishy-washy people, you just kind of want to tell them, get it straight. And then uh, we are to... Uh, save others, snatching them out of the fire. I think there's people who are deceived, and you need to go in like the Coast Guard, drop the rope, and you're trying to save them. You're getting lunch with them, grabbing a coffee, picking up the phone and saying, I really think you're in something dangerous because I love you. I want to to share some things with you. Would you be willing to let me uh, talk to you about this? Would you be willing to share some of your thoughts so I can understand where you're coming from? I really think you're involved in something that could harm you. And and if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. But if I'm right, I really want to help you because I love you. There's an approach there, right in with the gospel, and you're trying to uh, you know, snatch them out of the fire. And then Jude says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think these are the dangerous people. This would be, for example, right now still, um, my uncle, I have mercy on him with fear. I, I'm not just going to grab a steak dinner with him. I'm not like, hey, let bygones be bygones. No big deal. Tomato, tomato, agree to disagree. It, it's very serious. There are dangerous individuals who are uh, false teachers, and they are, they are trying actively to deceive. They are exploiting people. They are what Jude explains as the ungodly and those who cast up their shame like the foam of the sea. I mean, these, these are dangerous people. They're wild waves. And we don't need to condemn them. The Lord gets the final say. We also need to be careful of them. And so there's a category, maybe you're related to someone who's a false teacher or who's very manipulative, and you're, you're not sure how to approach them. Jude's words are to show mercy with fear. I love that he says show mercy again, because those mm-hmm. are also some of the easiest people to uh, judge and to cut off. And I'll be honest with you, there, there are days at times, especially in the beginning, where you know I would write off a family member. But the reality is, uh, I'm not God. My job is to is to love with truth, and so we need to be praying, yes, even for false teachers, that the Lord would transform their hearts and their lives. Imagine if people thought Paul was too far gone. You know, I in in Acts seven and then in Acts eight. You remember Stephen? He's praying for. He literally cries out to God. Don't hold this against them, basically. What I find so fascinating about a passage like that mm-hmm. is Paul was there, remember, giving hearty mm-hmm. approval. They're laying mm-hmm. their coats at his feet. Now, there's nowhere in the text that, that says this is the absolute truth. So I'm not running with it that far. But I will say this. Stephen cried out to God, don't hold this against them. The Lord in his mercy, Paul's there, and the Lord knows Paul is about is going to go on to write 13 of the 27 New Testament letters. Um, more if someone, a scholar, believes that Hebrews is Pauline hmm. literature as well, but another topic for another time. But overall, beautiful picture mm-hmm. of Stephen crying out 
for the souls, the mercy upon uh, those who were from the other side. And Paul happens to be there that day. The Lord would later save him. Uh, What if Paul was the answer to Stephen's prayer? What if the Lord saves a false teacher because we're faithful? What if the Lord rescues a family member through us? We're not God. I don't know who he's going to save today, but I know that I need to be faithful. So my encouragement to you is to discern the category of individual you're dealing with and then relate with them based on that and use a lot of wisdom and try to reach their heart for the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, what about a pastor who might be listening to our broadcast today, watching, um, beginning to notice some of these kinds of prosperity teachings creeping into their non-denominational church, their Baptist church, whatever their uh, affiliation might be, but they're beginning to notice some of these things in the church. How would you uh, counsel them to address those things? Yeah, I would, I would go to the book of Acts, and uh, in, a, in a descriptive sense, I would say, let's look at what Luke describes about Paul's words to the elders uh, at Ephesus. And when he's leaving, he tells them to be on guard, to shepherd the flock, and to be careful because savage wolves are going to come in among them. You remember that? And basically, uh, he calls them to protect the flock of God period. Um, and then I go over and think through First Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter's words, you know, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, not for sordid gain. I would tell my brothers who are pastors uh, that we are called to serve and protect and guide the flock of God. We're not called to please men. We're called to please God. We're not called to, to give in and do whatever feels good or what the culture wants us to do. Um, there will be wolves. There will be those, like in Acts 20, that are within the church that seem to assault us. And we need to be faithful. Uh, I would just say, remember that one day you and I are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And all that matters on that day is that he looks at us, no matter what we went through, no matter how big your church is, how small it is, etc. All that matters is that the master looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I want rewards, not because I want a bunch of rewards. I want rewards because they're indicative of faithfulness. It means the Lord was pleased with my ministry. And so I would just say, find some pastors, some brothers around you with conviction that can encourage you. Hold your line and please Christ above anyone else and stick to sound doctrine. It'll preserve you and those who hear you, like Paul told Timothy. Well, thank you so much, Costi, for being on the show today. Our time has gone very, very quickly, and it is now gone, but I've really enjoyed the conversation with you. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, brother. Talk to you again soon. Once again, the book is God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. You can check that out to get Costi's full story. If you have a topic that you would like to consider for a future episode, um, we would like to take those things into consideration. So please email us with your suggestions at the table at dts.edu. And we hope to see you again next time on The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.